Hi, I'm Bob McDemus, and this is my wife, Kim McDemus, and we've been part of the multiple campuses uh, at the Bible Chapel here, and it's going on about eight years now. I dove right in because I saw many opportunities. Um, having had my coffee shop, I dove into hospitality and working in the kitchen right away. I never really had grasped the one church, many campuses concept, but when the people from the South Hills campus and the Robinson campus started showing up to help us bring the transition, the building, um, seeing the life groups and families with their children and different Bible study groups showing up, it was so awesome to watch as we all grew as one community. What was really fascinating is each one of these communities had a unique personality. It was all the people coming together, again, to do that common goal and the common thing to celebrate Christ, and we each had a unique community in each place. Growth is a reward for getting out of your comfort zone, and it's uh, something I don't think we can put a measure on, but it's just each time you do that, you grow a little bit about more, and it's just growth. I think community in the church looks like unconditional love. I think community in the church looks like family. It's not all roses. There's a lot of thorns in there. But the community comes together to, uh, to deal with that. So I like what Bob and Kim say regarding community. It's like family, right? And it's not all roses. There are no perfect families. Sometimes there are thorns. But together we can do things that we could, we could never do alone. And it's Jesus who said, I'm going to build my church, I'll build my ecclesia, my community, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So we've been involved in this series uh, since September, and we've been talking about community and what that means and what it looks like. We, we tried to be as honest as we can, saying that while there are tremendous things that happen in community, and sometimes there are thorns. And there are challenges that we go through, but we work together through those challenging times to be the community that God has called us to be. In this series, we have used Paul's letters, his letter to the church in Rome, his letter to the church in Corinth, his letter to the churches in the area of Galatia, his letter to the church to Ephesus. And we've learned that every church had their share of tremendous opportunities and their share of challenges. We've learned that when the church is working right, there's, there's nothing like it. But because it's made up of people, imperfect people like you and me, sometimes it gets a little messy. But the key, the critical truth, is that through all the times, through times of great opportunity, through times of the messiness, we don't keep our eyes on each other because we will fail each other every time but we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's what Paul taught us the last time we were together looking through Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude, Paul said, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Today, what I want to do is continue in this passage. 
Last time we looked at the verses I just read. Today, I want us to look at the prequel to that, the verses found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bible, be sure to find Philippians, and let's work our way through these passages. Let me set the context of this. We learn about uh, the founding of the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was in this area, in the area of Asia, actually in Turkey. He was in Troas, and he uh, one night got a vision. And in this vision, there was a man from the Macedonia area up here in the vision begging Paul to come and help them in Macedonia. Paul took that vision as one from the Lord, and so he set out from Troas, sailed over to Europe and Philippi. Philippi was the first church founded on the European continent. Philippi was uh, a city made up of retired Roman soldiers. It was a Roman colony, and retired soldiers would go there. It was a beautiful area, and they would go and live out their last days there. Normally, when Paul went into an area, he found a synagogue, and he told them, here's what God said in the Old Testament. Here's the Christ that was promised throughout the Old Testament. In Philippi, he couldn't find a synagogue. There was no synagogue. It took 10 Jewish married men to create a synagogue. And there weren't 10 married Jewish men in Philippi. And so when Paul went to a city and there was no synagogue, he would go out by a river because that's where a lot of the religious people or God-fearers, they were called, would pray. A God-fearer was someone who said, there's one God and I worship that God, but they had not adopted or hadn't converted to Uh, Judaism, the Jewish faith. And so Paul goes out to the river to pray. He could have been uh, this river. Here's a picture of the river. It's called Lydia's uh, River. And so he goes and he finds this lady named Lydia, who was a businesswoman, well-to-do businesswoman. She was a, if you remember, she was a trader in purple cloth from Thyatira. And so she was there. She was a God-fearer and she heard the message of Jesus Christ And she said, man, I want to trust in him. And she did. God worked, moved in her heart. And the first European convert we know of was this woman named Lydia. The church began to meet in her house. And again, you can read that story in Acts chapter 16. Paul had a great relationship uh, with the church uh, in Philippi. He ministered to them. They ministered to him. When he went, left Philippi and he ended up in Rome in prison, the church learned about it, and they sent a young man named Epaphroditus to go minister to Paul while he was in prison. And while Epaphroditus was there, Paul heard some great things about what was going on in Philippi. He writes this letter back, and the cool part about the letter, we'll talk about this next time, the word joy is found in there, I think, like 16 times, rejoice or joy. So there was great uh, joy in the church in Philippi, but something in Epaphroditus's uh, talk with Paul kind of uh, raised a red flag. Something Epaphroditus said, Paul thought there may be some disunity. And so in Philippians chapter 2, Paul attempted to, to nip the problem right in the bud. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let me read these, and then we'll work our way through them. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any compassion 
from his love. If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. That's a tall order right there, isn't it? Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, you'll notice as Paul writes this, he begins with four conditional phrases. And he structures these conditional phrases in order to emphasize a truth. He is not saying, if this happens, it may or may not happen. He's using it to say, this indeed is happening. And so the first readers, when they got this letter, when Epaphroditus brought it back to them and they opened the scroll and they started reading, they they would have read something like in in chapter 2, Paul's writing, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and they're going to say, are you kidding, Paul? Of course we have encouragement from being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, are you serious, Paul? That's the thing that comforts us. That's the thing that gives us peace. That's the thing that calms our heart, God's love. If any fellowship of the Spirit, Paul, are you kidding? It's the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And so Paul uses these conditional phrases to emphasize the point. We could say it like this, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have fellowship with his spirit, since there is tenderness and compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete. And he goes on to tell the Philippians some things they need to do. These four verses uh, are amazing verses. Paul uses um, tremendous structure in putting them together. And what he does, he begins with, with four statements of who we are in Christ, four statements of our position, and then he comes back with those four statements and he brings in four practical things we need to do based on each truth. So let's, let's go through it. Here's what it looks like. First, Paul says there are, there, there are some, there's a position you have. He says, if you have, or since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, that word encouragement means reassuring, lifting up, support, to console someone. You have encouragement because you are united with Christ. In Scripture, uh, we read sometimes united with Christ, or in the Greek, in Christo, in Christ. Uh, It just simply means that you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way you can have a relationship with the living God. You are in Christ. You are protected in Him. He has forgiven your sins. He's paid the penalty for your sin. He lives within you. You are in Christ, and He is in you. You live in the realm of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's who you are. You are in Christ. You're united with Christ. Here at the Bible Chapel, we like to talk about being united with Christ or in Christ by using the word, the acronym SAFE with two S's. 
You are in Christ. You are significant. You don't have to worry about your appearance. You don't have to worry about where you live. You don't have to worry about your job. You're significant. Your job can go away tomorrow and you are just as significant because your significance does not depend on what you do. It's who you are, better whose you are. Your significance is in Christ. Your security You have the security that is always in Christ. Everything in our life could go away and we still have Jesus. That's never going to change. Our security is in him. You're accepted. You don't have to be a people pleaser anymore because the only one you want to please is God who loves you unconditionally. You are accepted by him. You're forgiven. All the guilt and weight of the past is gone. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. You are forgiven and you are empowered by the spirit that lives in you. That's who you are in Christ. And that never goes away. Paul says that's your position in Christ, united with him. Secondly, he says, not only are you united with him, but if you have any comfort from his love. Is there comfort from knowing that you are loved unconditionally and eternally by the living God. My standing before him is not based on performance. Now, I get it. We live in a world that is performance-based, right? You get evaluated in everything you do. We say at the, the Bible chapel, I'm only as good as my last sermon, Right? There's always performance, being judged, being critiqued. But with God, the performance goes away. It's not how you perform for him. It's what Jesus did for you. And there is comfort in that. And you are his and will always be. His unconditional love says this, and this is hard for us to grasp, There is nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And it took me until I was 25 years old to understand that. I grew up in a church that shared the gospel clearly, and we had great music, and we cared for each other. But we missed a critical piece of theology. We did not hold to the assurance of salvation or eternal security. And so, you know, I thought I could lose my salvation. That's a tough way to live, and I'll never forget. I mean, I looked at, I always thought of the Lamb's Book of Life, and where my name was, it had been written in and erased so many times, like a hole had been worn through the Lamb's Book of Life. And I'll never forget the day when I realized that I was God's and would forever be, and it was like a weight had been lifted from my shoulders. We have comfort in his love. Yesterday, we had a memorial service for Jackie Noon. Uh, Jackie was a member of our church uh, for many, many years. And she was a true servant for probably 15 to 20 years. She played uh, the piano for us in the worship services. She worked with our youth. She was a a great mentor uh, to our youth. And uh, they had a, she and Bob had had a cottage uh, on the yacht, and, and they would go to the cottage and great family members. But even, even during the spring and summer when they would spend most of the time in the cottage, they would drive back here on Sunday mornings so she could play and they could serve because they always, they never wanted their cottage to interfere with their service uh, to Jesus Christ. And so yesterday we had her memorial service, and it was a great time of celebration. But I got to tell you, we weren't celebrating 
uh, Jackie's service. We weren't celebrating the fact that she was a great pianist. We weren't celebrating the fact that she gave piano lessons to probably thousands of students. We weren't celebrating uh, the fact of her, her generosity. We were celebrating the fact that Jesus died for her on the cross. And he loved her so much that he brought her into the family. That's the only reason that we can celebrate. Let me ask you a question. What are they going to celebrate at your memorial service? Man, I've had some kids stand up, tell me how hard their, you know, tell everybody how hard their dad worked. Man, he was the hardest worker I know. It's all about all the things they did. Man, there are some cool things. And never, ever mention the relationship with Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters, isn't it? There is comfort, eternal comfort in his love. That's a positional truth that never goes away. We're united with Christ. We are loved and we are connected to him. Look at the next statement. If any fellowship with the Spirit. The word fellowship is a Greek, great Greek word, rich Greek word, koinonia. It means close association. It means connection. When I become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within me. The nanosecond, I trust in Christ. The nanosecond, God brings me to himself. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within me. It is not some second work that happens later on. If I am a believer, the Holy Spirit lives within me. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, they do not belong to Christ. No Holy Spirit? You're not a Christian. You're a Christian? You have the Holy Spirit. You are connected into his family. You are accepted into his family. And it's the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead who lives within us to empower us, to encourage us, to convict us, to teach us, to guide us, who gives us spiritual gifts, to assure us, to pray for us. Sometimes, you know, you're in a situation and you just say, God, I don't even know how to pray anymore. I've prayed every prayer I know in this situation. I'm exhausted don't know how to pray. Paul says in in Romans 8 that when we can't pray for ourselves, the Holy Spirit takes over. And he prays for us with groanings too deep for words. That's not coming out of our mouth. The Holy Spirit inside of us is praying at a level that we can't even comprehend. Our position is that we are connected by the Spirit of the living God. And there's one more position that Paul gives here in these conditional statements. He says, if any tenderness and compassion, any tenderness and compassion, I believe that's the word restored, forgiven, transformed. During our life, we're going to stumble and we're going to fall. Even as believers, we're going to sin. We're not going to just make mistakes. We're going to sin. We're going to hurt other people. We're going to hurt ourselves. When we stumble and fall, Jesus is there to forgive us. His tenderness and compassion, his forgiveness and his restoration. 
If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So right after the memorial service yesterday for Jackie, I had the privilege of doing a recommitment ceremony for a couple who had been divorced and had been separated for some years. And by God's grace, he, um, he brought them back together. And that was a time of great joy. And as we talked about that service beforehand, you know, they talked about, you know, ah, there's guilt in the past. But this is a time to focus on God's forgiveness. This is a time to focus on God's restoration. This is a time to focus on the fresh start that he gives us. Aren't you glad that God gives us fresh starts? His compassion. So some of you are and some of you aren't. Yeah, I know how that clapping goes. I don't know what uh, you've gone through in your life. I don't know what you're going through in your life. And you may have fallen, you may have fallen hard. You may be down right now. But I gotta tell you, with the living God, there is forgiveness. And there's restoration. And wherever you are, he'll meet you there, but he won't leave you there. He picks you up and he takes you to the place that he wants you to be. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you're kind of, you've settled, you've just settled for a second tier Christian life. You say, I got, too, I got too much stuff, I got too much baggage. I'll just live down here at the second tier Christian life. Man, that is a lie. That's right from Satan. He wants to keep you there. You don't have to settle for a second tier Christian life. God has come to restore you. He's come to transform you. He's come to take you to new places. He never wastes our time. Yeah, you may have fallen. Stand in a long line there. but he can take you to new heights and he will use the failures of your past. He can redeem those and use those in ways that make eternal significance. So that's our position. That's what we can take to the bank for eternity. We are united with Christ. We are loved unconditionally. We are connected to the living God and we have tenderness and compassion. He restores us. Now those are the truths of our position in Christ. And sometimes we like to stop there, right? I love who I am in Christ. I really love that. And I want to focus on that. I want to think about that. And I want to live in that. But Paul says, not so fast. There are some other things I have for you to do. So Paul says, here's your position. Here are the four points of position. Now I want you to take your position and I want you to put it into practice. So with the four truths of position, Paul brings in four truths of practice. Let's look at this. Paul says, first of all, if there is any encouragement in being united with Christ, then make my joy complete, down into verse 2, by being like-minded. Our position, we're united in Christ. In Christ, our practice we are ones who spread unity with others. 
Our like-mindedness comes from our focus, not on each other. We will disappoint each other every time. That's why people, there are people not in this church today because of some of us in this church today. You want to look at another person, you want to follow another person, you will be disappointed every time. Our focus has to be on Jesus. He never disappoints. We're going to have different theological nuances. We're going to have different personalities. We're going to have different preferences. We used to share a car with our kids when they were growing up, which meant they always got the car and I never did. That's what sharing meant in our family. We didn't teach them early on and that's, what, that's the consequences you pay. And I remember getting into the car the few times I got to drive it and the radio is blasting and there's some rap or something coming out of the speakers and I would say, what is that? And they would say, well, sometimes they would say, well, that's Christian music. I'd say, how could you tell? You can't understand a word that's said. Now, that's not my preference for music. But when you drive a car together, you have to give and take. And when you're in community together, you have to give and take. Different personalities, different preferences, different stages of life. Some ministry that you look at and say, why would we ever have that ministry? That's a lifeline for somebody else. Some song you would sing, why do we ever sing that song? That's someone else's favorite song. We have different preferences. We encourage each other by being like-minded, by keeping our focus on that thing we have in common, that person we have in common, Jesus Christ. Paul said, secondly, if you have any comfort in his love, then make my joy complete by what? By loving each other. Jesus has loved you unconditionally. Now, love each other. John chapter 15, Jesus said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. As a Christian, Jesus loves me unconditionally, and I need to love each other. We need to love each other unconditionally in the same way. Jesus' love is, for me is not based on me being perfect. Neither can my love for you or your love for me be based on our being perfect. John chapter three, first John chapter 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person Dear children, love, let us love not only with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Don't just talk about it, do it. Now, let's, let's have some clarity here. So, I've had a lot of questions about, you know, how do Christians respond to the refugee issue we have, right? Syrian refugees. We know some terrible things are happening in Syria. And how should we as Christians lead the way or respond to refugees coming into our country? And I know a lot of people have some uh, different uh, ideas on this. But, but here's the point I want to make and then draw it in a little closer to home. L love is not a blanket acceptance. And so with the refugee situation, we have some things where we can't screen people really well. And within that group, there may be some who would cause danger to us, our family. And so love, Christian love, 
is not just a blanket acceptance. I don't think anyone here would invite a group of 20 people into their home for Thanksgiving dinner if you knew one person in the group was a serial killer, right? So love doesn't mean we accept the sins or even put ourselves in danger because of others. Now, let me draw that a little closer to home. We can talk, we like to talk about, we, we love those, those discussions. And we like to talk about that. But as Christian parents, love means that we demonstrate that in our home. That's where it's got to start. And I know a lot of Christians who are great servants, and they're doing all kinds of stuff serving the church. Just one problem. They're not loving their kids. They're not even there for their kids. See, how can you say you're demonstrating the love of Christ out here if you're you're not going to love your wife? How can we say we're going to love the world, but we're not even going to be there for our kids? This is practical stuff. Christ has loved us so we love others, but it's got to start in our homes. That's why we work to keep marriages together and keep families together. It's got to start here in community because we can go talk, we can go write blogs about the Syrian refugee issue, but if there's disunity among us, the world says, what are you talking about? can't even keep your church together and you're going you're going you're going to write about the world there's got to be some consistency in our life and love's got to start at home here's the third practical application to the truth philippians chapter 2 if any fellowship with the spirit then make my joy complete by being one in spirit and purpose You've been connected to the living God. Now, be connected in the mission that you have in community. Our mission here at the Bible Chapel is to develop followers of Jesus Christ. We love the word develop because it means to bring into reality the non-believer, and it means to grow stronger or make stronger, focusing on the believer. We, We know that we're all different taking that mission together, we know we're all different. And it takes every one of us, every one of us using our gifts. That's why we focus on the fact that you've got to find your gift as a believer and use it because we need you. I don't need you. God needs you. He brought you to himself. He's given you a gift and you can use that gift in community. And together we can do things together we could never do alone. And it takes every one of us. Some of you have the gift of evangelism. You are always thinking about how to share the message of Christ. You come back and you tell me about a trip you've taken and how you shared with the waitress, how you left a track there. When you get in on an airplane, if you haven't led the person next to you to Christ by the time the airplane takes off, you feel like you failed. Some of you have the gift of administration. 
You are a detail person. You've already circled all the typos in the bullet. <laughs> Some of you have the gift of giving. The first thing you did when you got the bulletin was turn it around and you looked at our general fund giving to see how we're doing and you're seeing we're behind and you're irritated about it. And I'm irritated too, but that's another sermon. <laughs> Some of you have the gift of encouragement. Your notes come just at the right time because it's a spiritual gift. So the spirit guides you to write the note and someone gets it and they say, oh my goodness, how could the timing be any better? Or the email or the phone call. Some of you have the gift of teaching, discernment, faith, helps, hospitality, leadership, mercy, shepherding, teaching, wisdom. Everybody working together to do what God's called us to do. In Christ, our position is that we are united with him. Our practice is that we keep unity among the body. In Christ, we are loved, so we love each other practically. In Christ, we are connected, and so we get connected in mission together. And in Christ, we are restored. And when we finally understand his tenderness and compassion, then we want to respond to other people in the same way. Since you have experienced God's tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This speaks to our motives, why we do what we do. And we don't do what, what we do to be for self-promotion, but to promote Jesus Christ. Consider others better than yourselves. Paul's not talking about self-flogging. He's talking about self-sacrifice. C.S. Lewis said it like this. It's not that we think less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. So community means that we take this journey together. We put down some of our preferences so we can continue to build the body. We make sure we are on mission together, connected with each other. We love each other in humility, thinking of others instead of just ourselves. Man, how would the church change worldwide? If just, just in a worship service, people would come in not thinking of just themselves, but those around them. Radical stuff. Years ago, I read a story from a guy named Reuben Welch. Some of you probably heard me share this before. From a book, We Really Do Need Each Other, and we included it in, in Living Grounded. And it's a story about um, uh, a college summer class. And uh, probably a lot of you have taken summer classes in college. I know I did. And it was always smaller group. And, and it was a little more informal. And you got to know each other in the class. And that's what happened to this college class. And at the end of the summer, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate our time together by taking a picnic and just enjoying each other. There's a little mountain by their campus. And so they were going to hike up the mountain. There was a clearing, a beautiful clearing. And they were going to have a picnic in this clearing on the mountain. So they planned who was going to bring what, and they brought 
They brought sandwiches and they brought the drinks and they brought the desserts and they packed their backpacks full and they met at this particular time to make their way up the mountain. And they took off. And it wasn't long before those experienced hikers, those that were fast, you know, experienced hikers always have to get to the mountain first, right? You ever been with those people? Always got to get there first. And so they took off. The people who were a little slower lagged behind. People out of shape lagged even further behind. The people up front were yelling down, hey, hurry up. And people down below were saying, slow down. And they were spread out over the mountain. It was a mess. Some of them made it to the top first. Some of them finally got up there. Others said, forget this. And they went home. The class was too close. They said, we are not going to end our summer class like that. So they planned another trip. And they said, whatever it takes, this time we're going to get to the top of the mountain together. So they planned who was going to bring the sandwiches and desserts and drinks. And they packed their backpacks. And this time they started again. And those who were fast had to just slow down. And those who were a little slower had to speed up, and they took a bunch of breaks along the way. And by the time they got to the top, all the sandwiches were gone. (laughs) All the dessert was gone and the water was gone, but they made it to the top together. Reuben Welch concludes the story this way. You know something? We're all just people who need each other. We're all learning, and we've got a long journey ahead of us. We've got to go together. And if it takes until Jesus comes, we better stay together. We better help each other. And I dare say that by the time we get there, all the sandwiches will be gone. All the chocolate will be gone. All the drinks will be gone. All the backpacks will be empty. But no matter how long it takes us, we've got to go together because that's how it is in the body of Christ. It's all of us in love, in care, in support, in mutuality. We really do need each other. We really do, don't we? We really do need each other. The Christian life can be, can be just kind of whittled down to these two truths. We desperately need Jesus. And we desperately need each other.